It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. You know, how much do you know about Holy Week? You know, from Palm Sunday to the triumph of Easter. How familiar are you with the political intrigue and jealous outrage of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that Jesus caused really just by healing the sick and comforting the lost and bringing the scriptures alive for people of the first century. Now, have you ever wondered, though, this is an important point, why if Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem on a Sunday as a king with throngs waving palm branches, why then by Thursday night was he arrested, um, his followers scattered, and a mock trial would end with his execution on a cross? You may not know the story's bullet points. Well, you may know the story's bullet points, but, you know, the intrigue of this historical moment with all its twists and turns are even more fascinating. And it takes someone with incredible insight and knowledge to to uncover them. Dr. Jeannie Constantino is certainly one. She is a biblical scholar with six degrees, including a Juris Doctorate in law. Uh, she's an expert on first century Roman criminal justice and joins me now to talk about her book, The Crucifixion of the King of Glory, The Amazing History and Sublime Mystery of the Passion. Welcome, Dr. Jeannie. Thank you very much for having me on your wonderful podcast, Lauren. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I'm a big fan of yours, too, I'll tell you. Um, you know, you call the Bible an inexhaustible well of divine insights and inspiration that the words, wisdom, and profound example of Jesus Christ never cease to amaze. Now, why why those words? Why why you have this feeling about the Bible? I just find that every time I read it, especially the Gospels with the words of Christ, I'm just constantly amazed by the depth of his wisdom and how profound it is. And I, it just never ceases to amaze me. It never gets old. It never stops being something I have no other word except what we say, Sophia, it's wisdom, it's divine wisdom, and how different that is from human wisdom. And everything about the salvation of the world that was wrought by God, of course, is the product and can only be the product of God's wisdom because it's so amazing how everything unfolded. Yeah, but it's just the words of Christ, you know. Yeah, it's you're talking about it. It's amazing. Now, if people don't know by your name, you are Greek, and that means you're Greek Orthodox. It doesn't mean that everybody's Greek who's Greek Orthodox, but you are Greek Orthodox. You're married to a Greek yes. Orthodox priest. So for people who don't know, what is the difference between Orthodoxy, um, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism? And, and why don't they celebrate Easter on the same day? I mean, <laughs> I mean, this year, they're about a week apart. Next year, yes. they're come like six weeks apart, basically. Yes, I mean, it's yes. really amazing. Um, True. But they're all Christian. But why these different dates and why these different denominations? Right. Well, um, the Orthodox Church is the oldest continuous church. It goes back to the time of the apostles. Now, of course, this is what Catholics say, too. But Catholicism has changed tremendously over the centuries. Anybody who visits an Orthodox Church will see that it is like stepping back in time to the early church. So the thing that makes 
orthodoxy different. It's what we also called sometimes just Eastern Christianity or Eastern Orthodoxy is that it never went through the changes that happened in the Catholic Church Hmm. during the Middle Ages, the rise of the papacy, the growth of the tremendous power and corruption of the papacy, the changes in theological methodology that took place in Western Europe. Because the way Catholics and Protestants approach theology, the way they theologize, we would say, especially the emphasis on the use of human rational deduction, for arriving at theological conclusions was very, very foreign to the early church. So Orthodox Christianity has kept the practice, the the mindset, the liturgical um, practices, as I said, from the very beginning, especially the Greeks, because we're still reading the New Testament in church in its original language. So a lot of Protestants tend to think of Orthodox Christians as just like Catholics without the Pope, and so do a lot of Catholics. (laughs) But we're not. We're very, very different. In many ways, we're much more similar to Protestants. But in other ways, um, we, we, but we, because we have hierarchs and liturgy and things like this, people think we're just like Catholics. But we think very differently than Catholics do. And in many ways, Catholics and Protestants, theologically speaking, are more similar to each other. And I brought some of this out just a little bit in the book when I was talking about the way we understand the crucifixion of Christ, not from a historical perspective, but theologically speaking, mm-hmm. when the emphasis in the West has has often been a very transactional idea about the crucifixion of Christ. The God, the Father, demanded that someone pay for, for sin. And so, the you know, this is all comes from medieval Western European thinking, mm. the idea that the sal- our salvation depended upon Jesus dying to literally pay a price. It's not that Jesus didn't die as a sacrifice. He certainly did. But this idea that the father demanded it because of some legalistic obligation is not actually something we see in the New Testament, but people read it into that. That came from Anselm of Canterbury, and he was a, he was a Latin theologian around the year, you know, 1100. Mm-hmm. So... So this is so it's a very different mentality, a different approach. That's what or, Greek Orthodoxy or Orthodox Christianity is. It's the early church, and it's it's without the kinds of changes that have happened over the centuries um, to the Western churches. Yeah, but the idea that I think a lot of people do believe that this is sort of you know transactional. But yeah. what is it? In, it, it, it because it there's a nuance there. There's a yes, nuance there that, yes. that I think has been missing. So what yes, is it if it, it's not transactional? It's it, That idea impoverishes the cross. Okay, if that's what it is, then why did Jesus rise from the dead? Hmm. What What is it? How? And first of all, what does that say about who God is? What, what is he, some cruel monster that demands the death of his own son and, and by torture? And there's a lot of this has been elaborated on over the centuries. And many people, um, particularly many Protestants, kind of revel in this idea that Jesus did all of this for me and he suffered all this. Of course, he suffered for us. We don't deny that. Of course, it was a sacrifice. What it comes down to, I think the easier way to understand it is is like if all of us or many of us are parents and we know what we would do for our kids. We would sacrifice anything. We would undergo any kind of a torture or hardship for our children, not because it's demanded by anybody, 
but out of love. So when we read John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world Mm. that he sent his only son, that he gave his only son. And one of the things I bring out in the book that, you know, you, you had told me you were reading was the crucifixion of the King of Glory is, is that we see the corresponding or we could say the prefigurement of the love of God in the person of Abraham who offers Isaac and the fulfillment of that in the person of Jesus Christ. So the, what we talk about, the reason for Orthodox Christians, the reason why the cross is important is it expresses the love of God and of course Christ who is God for humanity and the depth of his humility and we this is what we see in philippians 2 mm-hmm. right isn't mm-hmm. that what philippians 2 is all about he did not consider equality with god something to be grasped but he emptied himself and became a human being and being found in the form of a servant he lowered himself to accept death even a death on the cross yeah. so it is the example of love and humility that is important about the cross not that Somebody had to pay a price for our sins, and that was somehow demanded in a very legalistic way and is satisfied by Jesus, and now we don't have anything else to do or worry about. Because what the reason why he died is he died to conquer death. And this is, and this is what the Greek Orthodox actually say um, in their mantra of uh, Christus, um, uh, Christus Aneste, yes. which is conquered right. death by death. And that's a very Greek thing. And I'd never heard that until I had gone yes. to the Greek services. My husband is Greek. So, you know, yes. 10 years ago, I began going to Greek services, but I'd never heard that. And it actually yeah, makes right. sense that death yes. is our and ultimate enemy. That's right. And that's, that's, that's scriptural too. So everything that we believe is scriptural, but what has happened is that in the Middle Ages, this idea that there's sort of trend toward legalism in theology um, and sort of rationalization, why did God become man? Well, he t- died be- to pay. He came, became man because somebody had to pay for our sins. The whole legalism about sin and satisfaction, it's not that, as I said, Jesus, we don't believe that Jesus died for our sins. He certainly died for us, but he died because we suffer the effects of sin, which is corruption and death. Okay, hmm. so somebody, so somebody had to conquer death. We could not conquer death. So that's what the Son of God did. Do you want me to answer the question about Easter? Well, the, I almost forgot the, about that. The Easter. Well, well, yeah. Why is Easter not the same? Because I think it's a difference between calendars, yes. right? What is the what is the problem yes, here? Right, with Easter? right. That's a. That's, it is a. It is a somewhat of a problem. Um, Here's what what happened in the early church. Of course, this is something else that I think is very unique about Orthodoxy. We emphasize there's a tremendous. You can see the connection between the early church and Judaism more clearly in the Orthodox Church than in oh, yeah, any other church because really we're so yeah we're so much like the early church. We haven't changed things, and we try very hard not to change things. Not because we're trying to to be a museum or something, but because Orthodox Christianity is the continuation of the apostolic faith. So we want to hold on to what the apostles taught and gave to us, a faith once and for all delivered to the saints. We don't believe that it's our place to change it to suit what we think is rational or logical or appropriate or modern. So what we try to do is keep the faith as we received it. Well, if you think about it, the reason why um, Jesus died at Passover 
there's a very, very strong theological reason and a strong connection to Passover. That's something else that I bring out in uh, the crucifixion of the King of Glory, the connection between Passover and the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, that's, so, that's my um, also, too. I mean, I think that one of the things is, you know, what is the most common error people do have about Palm Sunday and about whole, and yeah. Holy Week and Easter in general. Well, right. Yeah. L- let me finish with the, with this. So I finished explaining about the calendar if you, if, and then we'll get to mm-hmm. Palm Sunday. So here's what, um, <clears throat> here's what happens. If you will notice in, in the West, the um, Easter happens on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, which is spring. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. But in the Orthodox church, the thing that we do is we have to wait until after Passover, because Christ rose after Passover. So you will find that very often the Jews are having Passover. And then right after that, we end up having Easter, our Easter, Pascha. So that's the reason for the difference. We can't have it as early as the West does because the Jews haven't finished their Passover. So um, we keep that connection. It's a historical connection, but it's also a theological one. We keep that connection ah. that uh, you don't see. Well, that in also the, explains for a lot of people, you know, why Passover and Easter always kind of are on the same, the same time because That's these things right. are, these things overlap. So what, let's talk about Palm Sunday and what was happening. But the thing that's interesting yes. about Palm Sunday, the intrigue of Palm Sunday actually starts, or Holy Week actually starts, yes. or Orthodox actually begins right. Saturday before, and that commemorates Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Why is that so significant in this whole Holy Week? The raising of Lazarus is one of the catalysts that cause the Jewish leaders to decide that Jesus has to die, and he has to die right away. And we see that in the Gospel of John right after the raising of Lazarus. That's in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. So John... Um, describes how Lazarus was raised, and then uh, Mary and Martha and, uh, you know, friends of theirs take Lazarus back to Bethany, uh, where he lived, and um, celebrate, obviously, that he was alive again. But some people who witnessed the raising of Lazarus, and there were many, because Bethany was very close to Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. they witnessed the raising, they had also witnessed his burial, by the way, because... People, that was hands-on. You didn't take a body to a mortuary or something. Somebody died. The friends and the family came and they prepared it and they buried him. So right. people knew that he had been dead for four days. That well, There was no doubt about that. Right. So after he was raised, some of the witnesses to that returned to Jerusalem and they reported everything to the Sanhedrin. And they had an emergency meeting. This is also described in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. And that's where Caiaphas says, you don't understand. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. So they resolved to put him to death. So that happened, you know, before, and that's why the the raising of Lazarus is such an extraordinary sign. They realize that they, they need to do something to stop Jesus because he was a threat to their political power and control. They did not know that Jesus did not seek political power but right. because everybody the following day, but the following day, everybody welcomed him into Jerusalem. So when he gets welcomed into Jerusalem, well, maybe not the following day, that's how we celebrate it on the calendar. The, the day before Palm Sunday, we have the Saturday of Lazarus because of that historical connection, because John tells us himself, in, this is all scriptural that we fall, we're following the scriptures here. Mm-hmm. It says in the scriptures, John tells us 
that it's because of the raising of Lazarus that Jesus received this kind of welcome as he entered into Jerusalem. And ah. when he gets hailed, and when he gets hailed as the Messiah, which had a lot of political overtones in those days, this is when the Jewish leader said, you see, you see, the whole world is going after him. We have to do something about it. We have to stop him because they were worried that he could start a revolt and this would lead to them losing their power and their positions, which in primarily centered around the temple and the tremendous amount of uh, extraordinary power that they had politically, religiously, and all the money that flowed in from the temple. You know, that's the first cl- uh, catalyst, you know, and we know that though Jesus has been on their radar of the religious yes. leaders, really, even before Palm Sunday, yes. before the raising of Lazarus. So he's right. not he's not been someone that all of a sudden they wanted to 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 kill. Right. It's been That's a while right. now, right? Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned religious leaders because there's a there's this kind of caricature of the Jewish people that has is always or often brought out during Holy Week by preachers and pastors and priests who say that you know, on Sunday, they welcomed him into, uh, you know, the city as the Messiah. And then on Friday, they were shouting, crucify him as though they suddenly flipped and they loved him, then they hate him. And that makes no sense whatsoever. These are not the same people. What and I'm glad you mentioned religious leaders, because we tend to think about the Pharisees and the scribes who are Jesus's critics, most of his for most of his ministry when he's in Galilee, especially. But the people who orchestrate his death are the chief priests and the elders. So that that's a Jerusalem power base. Oh. Those are the people who run the temple. And you will, you will see how they are the ones, if you read the scriptures carefully, you can see they're the ones who, who come and confront him and say, on what by what authority do you do these things? After he cleanses the temple, which is a big deal for them. It's not just Jesus flips out and loses his temper. <laughs> this is a sign. This is a sign of the corruption of the temple. So we see them confronting Jesus. They're the ones who arrest him. They're the ones who pay off Judas. They're the ones who hold the trial and find him guilty of blasphemy. So it is that inner circle of Jewish corrupt, uh, not the ordinary priests, but the chief priests, which are this very small group of people who are immensely wealthy and powerful. Wow. That arranged for his death. Let, let, let's take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith. Lighthouse. <laughs> I'm so excited. Lighthouse Faith podcast. And we're going to be back talking about some of these catalysts and the climax of what goes on when he's actually arrested. Um, we'll be right back. And we're back with Dr. Uh, Jeannie Constantino, um, who has written the book, The Crucifixion of the King of Glory, the amazing history and sublime mystery of the passion. This week, there's so much intrigue into this one week of Jesus's life and and trial and death and resurrection that it's just, it's really incredible the kind of things that you've brought out in this book because you've got to understand first century Roman law as well as first century Jewish law and the Mosaic yes. laws. Um, one right. of the things you bring out in the book, which I think is really fascinating, is that they... The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the scribes are very interesting because you talk in the book about the scribes. They're actually these lawyers. I didn't understand yes. who scribes were. They're like these lawyers who know every little tot and tittle, dot and tittle of, right. of the law. You know, they're the experts. That's right. That's right. That's because when we think it's because the only two um, 
two evangelists bring that out, and they are the evangelists who are writing for a Gentile audience, you see. That's Luke and Mark. Sometimes they will call the scribes the lawyers so that their readers who were Greeks, you know, mm-hmm. Greeks and Romans, in other words, non-Jews, so that, their, so that their readers would understand that a scribe in the New Testament is not a copyist. That's a person who is an expert in the law of Moses. But the law of Moses, even that Christians don't understand. We think of the Ten Commandments, but the law of Moses is not the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses is hundreds of written regulations in the Torah Mm -hmm. and thousands of oral laws that had developed since the time of Moses. And it had to do with all kinds of little minute details of ritual purity. And as we know, the Lord did not was not impressed by that. He did not think that this is how you are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. This is not what makes you acceptable, particularly if you're corrupt on the inside, that that's not something that is, is important to observe. But of course, that was their whole life. The scribes um, used to go to school for years and they memorized all of those oral traditions, which had developed since the time of Moses and they memorized all of the uh, interpretations by leading Jewish rabbis and scholars and scribes as they had developed over the centuries. So they were like walking in legal encyclopedias. Later, those oral laws were written down. But at the time of Christ, they had not been written down. So the scribes were immensely powerful and highly respected because of their knowledge of the law of Moses. You know, Lauren, one of the things that's it's really important for us to understand is how differently people thought in the first century, not just Romans, but also Jews, because they assumed, and this is still part of Judaism, if you are keeping these rules, you are a more holy person. The extent to which you keep all of the rules of ritual purity is the extent to which God approves of you. And this is something that Christians really never think about because we don't focus on this idea of ritual purity. We don't believe in it. Thank thank God. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees and and the Sanhedrin, they're trying to set a trap. For Jesus, right. theologically speaking, they're trying to they're trap him in the yes. law of Moses, and this is what I think readers will find fascinating is that when when they approach Jesus and they ask them these questions, um, but there there are these traps they're trying to set for them. What are these traps that yes, they set yes. for him theologically? Well, first of all, they want to discredit him, right? So, in terms of there are different things that we see happen in the course of his. Uh, in the course of his ministry. So one of them, for example, the man with the withered hand or the woman who's bent over, they they try to, they want to see what he's going to do because they know that he heals on the Sabbath. Now, nowhere in the Torah are you going to find a prohibition of healing on the Sabbath, but they decided that healing was work. So that's one of those oral laws that developed, okay? Mm-hmm. So they, they're watching him and they're looking for, for things that they can find to accuse him of. But the one that becomes... I think the most most significant, which is closer to Jesus's crucifixion, is when they really they realize they really want him dead. They don't just want to discredit him as a teacher of the law, as a rabbi. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to just discredit him. They really want him dead. So they really want the Romans to get involved. 
So the more significant one is when they ask him about um, offering tribute to Caesar. Mm. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? That famous story um, which they think that they've got him because if he says yes, it's lawful, then he's acknowledging that the, that the um, Romans had a just claim on this money and that they're basically recognizing Roman rule as appropriate or just, or we could say lawful. And if he says no, then they could report him to the Roman authorities as somebody who was telling people not to pay the taxes, which is tantamount to treason. Mm. So that's a more significant trap that they're looking for some way that they can report him to Rome. But they don't succeed, of course, because Jesus says whose name is on the coin. And they just he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, as you know. But you can see how they're trying to set him up to say or do the wrong thing. And many, many times in the scriptures, it tells us that they were watching him carefully. And so um, there were a lot of efforts, but they were unsuccessful because when Jesus is brought before Pilate, Pilate has never heard of Jesus before. And believe me, if Jesus had done anything to suggest that he was undermining Roman authority, that would have been reported by his enemies. Um, right. Right. To, the, to the Roman authorities. So what the, let's bring up Judas, though, because Judas becomes the yeah. instigator of al- allowing the, the religious leaders to, to, to get Jesus. And they do it at night. And yes. we don't understand. And they do it really um, on, you know, on the eve of, 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 the, um, of the Sabbath and the Passover, which is like yes. illegal yes. anyway in Jewish law. Right. Yes. Yes. So all of these. Well, the, things, so the, the the trial was anyhow, you so, know, not necessarily an arrest, but the trial. Yeah. The eve on the eve of a Sabbath or eve of a, a, a feast day. Yes. There have been so many theories about Judas. Yes. And one yes, of the true. one of the most late ones, I think, is about, well, you know, Judas had to do it. Um, right. uh, Judas and Jesus you know, cooked up this scheme, whereas Judas was going to betray him because Jesus knew he had to die and he helped Judas become the instigator. And, you know, it's all forgiven kind of. Tell us about Judas. Yeah. Yeah, he is such an enigmatic figure and something that does fascinate us. And I think he fascinates us because we can't imagine why anyone would betray the Lord. Those of us who are Christians, of course, we can't imagine that. And this was definitely not something that was cooked up between Jesus and Judas, but people cannot imagine why anyone would betray the Lord. So they try to come up with some kind of rational explanation for what he did. But, you know, if you are a Christian and you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it is honest and historically accurate, you cannot cook up these reasons because there is one motive and one motive only that's given to us in the Bible, and that is money. And Judas goes, he's the one who takes the initiative to go to the chief priests and says, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? So he knows that they see Jesus as a problem. And he's not responsible, however, for the arrest or or death of Jesus, because in other words, he's not the instigator. They had already decided that Jesus should die. And they had made many attempts to arrest him. And this is brought out probably more clearly in the Gospel of John than in any other one. Mm -hmm. And they even pick up stones to throw at him in the temple in chapter seven and eight. 
and then um, and other places, too. So this is not the first time that they wanted to arrest him and put him to death. And even they sent the temple guards while he was teaching in the temple. And the temple, the captain of the temple guard came back and could not arrest him. And they said, why didn't you arrest him? And they, he says, no one has ever spoken like this man. Just imagine the grace and the depth and the wisdom of the words of the Lord. They couldn't even bring themselves to arrest him. But they were also, the Jewish leaders were afraid to arrest Jesus in the presence of the crowd because the people loved him. The people believed he was the Messiah or at least a prophet. So they didn't want to arrest him in front of a crowd. So what happens is that Judas makes the arrest of Jesus easier because Judas knows where the Jesus and the disciples are spending their nights on the Mount of Olives. And they can arrest Jesus quietly in the middle of the night, put him on trial, and then have him before Pilate to hopefully be sentenced to death. That's the plan. Early Friday morning, before anybody even knows the only that he was arrested, the only people who knew were the disciples, and they scattered, right? Mm-hmm. Were, the, were the 12. So Judas is this figure that nobody can understand, but he is not... Um, we can say, well, let's talk about this. Did he have to, did he have to betray Jesus? No. First mm. of all, the Jewish leaders would have arrested Jesus. They made many efforts to arrest Jesus. Judas doesn't make it possible. He just makes it easier for them. He makes it easier for them to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. He's put on trial before this great Sanhedrin in the middle of the night and found guilty of blasphemy and condemned to death. That's how Judas contributes. But he did not have to do it. And Judas was not deprived of his free will, because if we say from a theological perspective that Judas had to betray Jesus or that he contributed or somehow conspired with Jesus to get Jesus arrested. I don't know why anybody would think that, Mm -hmm. but that would make Judas contributing to our salvation. How can we possibly say that? Okay, this is part of the plan of God. From before the foundation of the world, this is an expression we hear in the New Testament. This is part of the plan of God, that the Son would be incarnate, that he would suffer and die on the cross to show the love of God for humanity. That's the plan of God. That has nothing to do with Judas. Now, the betrayal of Judas does happen, and it was foretold by the prophets. But that does not mean that Judas was deprived of his free will. And this is something, Mm. again, that's frequently misunderstood because people say, well, because of the prophecy, he had to do it. No. And the easiest way to understand this is to think about the weather. If you look at the horizon and you see dark clouds, you realize it's going to rain. So Mm -hmm. you say it's going to rain. Now, when the rain comes, is it your words that caused the rain or is it that you saw what was happening? And you realize that what was going to happen in the near future, that it would rain. This is how prophecy works. The prophet sees what will happen by the grace of the Holy Spirit. He sees what will happen and tells what will happen. He does not cause the thing to happen. Judas is not deprived of his free will. And Judas was not born for the express purpose of betraying Jesus. That was his decision. It goes to the corruption of his character and the fact that he was deceived by the evil one. We have to recognize that too. Yeah. Because the devil was working on Judas also. 
And it's funny how quick, you know, this is the idea that people think they're so immune to the devil's to the, the devil's uh, ways because think about it. If you can be under the greatest theologian yes. in the world, Jesus, the Lord, yes. and still yes. come under yes. the power of Satan. That's what, but that's what makes the story so compelling because Judas saw everything. This is one, this is one of the things that, so as Orthodox Christians, one of the things that we do a lot is we read the early interpreters of the Bible, the early, what we call fathers of the church. And so these are some of the, the profound questions that they answer because we're always trying to be tuned in to how the early church understood these stories and the New Testament writings, etc. Well, one of the questions they ask is exactly about this. How is it possible that, that Jesus Judas betrayed the Lord? And why did the Lord even choose Judas to be one of the 12? If he knew, as we know as Christians, because he's a Lord, that Judas would betray him. And the answer to that is that the Lord loved Judas too. The Lord did not want Judas to betray him. Remember, Judas is not necessary for the Lord to be arrested and put on trial. He just makes the arrest easier for the Jewish leaders. The Lord loved Judas. The Lord died for Judas too. He didn't want Judas to betray him, but Judas was going to it because he knew it was going to happen because that was foretold. So he knew that Judas was going to do it, but Judas did not have to do it. So the Lord did everything possible to make sure that Judas understood exactly what he was doing. So Judas could not say, I didn't know he was the Lord. I didn't know he was the Messiah because Judas saw everything. He heard Jesus admit, uh, yes, to Peter's point, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Yes, that's true. Judas knew that. Judas saw Jesus walking on water and stilling the storm and healing all these people and all of the teachings of the Lord. He not only was witness to that, when the Lord sent out the disciples two by two to practice preaching and healing, Judas did that too. Judas must have done miracles. I think we can assume that because that's what happened when the Lord sent all the disciples out in Matthew chapter 10, two by two. Judas was among them. So this is very, very important because we are not immune from falling away from Christ, and especially for a very crass motive, and that's money. We can sell out anyone for money, yeah. including our own souls. So it's, yeah, it's very important to remember that. He's a, um, a reminder of that, that we should never feel so confident in ourselves because, and, you know, because any, any one of us could do that. Yeah. Before we get to the whole trial part, I want to go back to the cleansing of the temple. Um, and okay. you, the book, and you explain what the temple really was. And I had no idea that it was this massive complex. You know, you know, when I grew yes. up in Sunday school, the temple was, you know, like my church. You know, it was just, yes. it was just that. And he, you know, it was <laughs> yes. in the lobby right, and he overturned right. the temple, uh, overturned the tables. <laughs> yes. Explain yeah. really what was happening there with the turning of the tables. And people point to that a lot, saying, well, see, Jesus sinned because he did that. He was so angry at these people. Yes. No, uh, Jesus did not lose control. First of all, we cannot say that Jesus sinned. Okay, we can never say that as Christians. In the Hebrews and other parts of the Bible tells us that Jesus was sinless. Yeah. He's the only sinless human being who ever lived. If he sinned, then he couldn't have risen from the dead, right? Right. Because then he would have died because of his own sin. And because he's sinless— 
he died for our sins, right? Right. So, um, and he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him because he was sinless. So no, he did not get angry. If you think about it, Jesus had been to the temple many times every year since he was a little kid, right? Mm -hmm. So he doesn't suddenly notice that they're selling animals or changing money or whatever and get angry and, you know, trash the temple. There's nothing like that. That was a deliberate prophetic act that was to express his concern and recognition that the temple um, institution had become completely corrupted. And I have a lot of explanations in the book about that. And we know these things, not from Christian sources, but from Jewish ones. There Mm. are Jewish writers of the late first century, second century, third century, and even in the Talmud, that talk about the immense corruption of the chief priests and the high priests. The temple was, I used to think that the same thing, it was just like a big church, but it was huge. It occupied one quarter of the land in Jerusalem. That's a massive thing. And it was the only Jewish temple in the entire world. So all Jews sent money to the temple for its maintenance. It was a place where where um, Jews believed that God was really present with his people and God was there as the, the presence of the Lord. And it attracted tremendous pilgrims at least three times a year. Jewish men were obligated to go to the temple for certain uh, for certain types of sacrifices and celebrations, not to mention all the other festivals and sacrifices that somebody could go to the temple for. So this was a huge money-making operation. It was very complex And it was a massive structure with a lot of moving parts and all of these different um, requirements that were necessary for the functioning of the temple. The priests, you know, 10 to 18,000 ordinary priests. And then you're talking about incense and animals and water and wine and and, and wood and salt and all of the implements and utensils. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of animals being sacrificed there every year and the money that flowed there. So when Jesus came and he did this, this was a deliberate act to show that how corrupt the temple was. And he wasn't the first person to notice this. Everybody knew it. Mm -hmm. But by doing this, it was a foreshadowing also of the destruction of the temple. And he made it known that he was he was challenging the religious leadership. So he didn't just lose his temper. He did not sin. We can never, ever say that. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful when we make statements <laughs> like that. Right, it's, right. Got, it's very theologically problematic. So this is one of the main catalysts. This is this is the catalyst, the main the most important reason why Jesus, they feel that he needs to be put to death very quickly. Because he's now because, attacking the power structure. Now he's exactly. coming to us. He's challenging because, it. And he's calling them robbers. You've made my father's house a den of robbers. He wasn't objecting to the sacrifice or the temple itself, but their corruption, the fact that they were really worshiping God with their lips only, their hearts were far from God. They were really in it for the money. So he's attacking the temple corruption, but that's why they are the leaders there. And that's why they, they want to maintain their power and their money base. So they're saying he's got to go. So so now, yeah, absolutely. but the, the thing is, people always ask this question, and we always bring this out, who really killed Jesus? Was it the Romans or the yeah. Jews? Yes. 
Well, the Jews are the ones who orchestrate his arrest, and they put him on trial. This is before the Romans know anything about Jesus. And these are the high, these are the religious leader Jews, right? This is not the... I'm glad you brought that up again. Yes, thank you for that. We're talking about the people who are really responsible are the chief priests and the high priests and the elders, the Sanhedrin, Mm -hmm. the religious leaders among the Jews, not the ordinary Jews, because they believed in him and they loved him. And these are the, the ordinary Jews are the ones who are shouting Hosanna when he comes into the into the city on Palm Sunday. But it's the leadership that finds itself threatened by his actions because they think that Jesus, because the crowd hails him as the Messiah, they think that Jesus um, wants to start a revolt and take over the leadership of Judaism. And that will mean that they will lose their position and their power and all of the money that they get from from this. And Jesus has, remember that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There's no disputing that. There were so many witnesses to that. Lazarus had been dead for four days. So they see Jesus, not only, it's not just his teaching, but his sheer power, his spiritual power for healing and exorcism and raising people from the dead. They're really afraid of him. So he's a tremendous threat to them. And they decide he has to go very quickly. So they're basically, your, they yeah. have, they actually have, so yeah. the idea, do the, the Romans kill who's, him? Who's or responsible? Who's yeah, responsible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the religious leaders, they arrest him and they put him on trial, the mock trial, right. essentially. Right. But yes, but the, and they put him on trial and they sentence him to death for blasphemy. Okay. And so they ask him, right. So, so let me let, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So let, let's, let's take a look at the Jewish trial. Let's, let's, for example, real quickly. So if you will notice in the Jewish trial, which is not in John, but it's in, um, it's most in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But especially if you look at Matthew's account and Mark's account, it says that they brought a lot of witnesses. And what were they? They oh, The witnesses did not agree. So by Jewish law, you, you had to have at least two witnesses that, that agreed to the same facts. And they couldn't get enough two witnesses to agree on the same thing, which shows you that Jesus hadn't done anything really incorrect. But finally, they get two to say that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple. So notice that that becomes the basis for the charge. It's after that, this man said, I will destroy the temple and in three days raise it up, which sounds kind of similar, but it's not the same. Right. Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus never threatened to destroy the temple. It was the Jewish leaders who wanted to destroy him. He is the temple of God because he is the presence of God on earth. You see, that's right. what Jesus is a temple. And so so this is this is so it's a mischaracterization of what he said, but that's the basis for the charge. And then the Jewish uh the high priest says to him, Are you the Messiah? He just asked him point blank. And Jesus acknowledges that he's the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. So he commits blasphemy as far as they're concerned. He deserves to die. So they sentence him to death, but they don't have the legal power to put him to death. Only, no, the, Ro- only, only the Romans do. That's right. But they could have secretly killed him if they wanted to because he was in their custody. And a lot of people were killed. Okay, Mm -hmm. so people say, well, how could they have done that? Well, people get killed today and it's against the law here in this country, too. Right. So nothing was to stop them from secretly killing Jesus, either, you know, hanging him or, you know, stoning him or something because they had him in their custody in the middle of the night. But they don't want to put him to death. They want the Romans to do it because Jesus is very popular with the people. They don't Ah. want to be responsible. 
And the other reason is they want Jesus completely discredited and disgraced. And the only way to do that was for him to die by crucifixion, because this would mean that he's cursed by God. And to this day, if you ask a Jewish person why Jesus could not be the Messiah, why they don't believe he's the Messiah, the number one reason is that he died on the cross. And this meant, as far as they're concerned, that he was cursed. Cursed so is everyone who dies we, on a tree, yes. The, yes, cursed is anyone who dies on a, hung on a, hangs on a tree. And crucifixion is considered a form of hanging. We wouldn't think of it as hanging. But they considered that, and I explained that also in the book, how that is considered by the Jews uh, as a form of hanging. Which means, and if you think about it, it was the most disgraceful form of death, the most humiliating form of death, the most painful form of death. So this means that God disapproved of Jesus because he allowed this to happen. Ah. So they always assumed that it is so part of the Jewish mentality, but especially strong in the Old Testament, that if you're a good person, God will bless you with many children and money and high position, etc. And if you're a bad person, uh, bad things will happen to you. Therefore, and there's nothing worse than being crucified. Therefore, the fact that Jesus was crucified was proof as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, that Jesus was rejected by God and cursed by God. So the religious so, uh, leaders have to figure out, have to maneuver yes. a way to make the Romans kill him, crucify him, because that that's was the right. Roman form of, of, of That's of, right. Of, of so that's execution. why they take him to Pilate. It solves two problems. First of all, they, they, he can be killed legally, um, not uh, sort of secretly by them, and he will be discredited. And that's the main reason why they want him to be crucified. So that's why they take him to Pilate. But it turns out to be not as simple as they thought it would be. There's a lot of intrigue involved there with Pilate as well. So he doesn't he doesn't know who he is. It's like, who, who is this? That's and right. And these people guy. will say, yeah, some many people will say, well, Pilate must have known who Jesus was. Well, why do we first of all, whenever you listen to a, a Bible scholar, somebody say, well, they must have. Well, Jesus must have been married. He must have done this. What do you mean must have? Be, be, you cannot you cannot try to understand these things the way you assume because Jesus is so famous today that the Romans knew who he was. How would he come to the attention of the Romans? Jesus was preaching to Jews. Yes, there were large crowds, but they were in the temple, they were in synagogues, they were out in the fields, they were in Jewish houses. Jesus did not do anything to attract the attention of the Romans. Believe me, if he had then they he would have been reported. And the Romans had, and just like Her the Herods did, the Romans had a lot of informants that kept them apprised of what was going on, okay? Yeah. So Ju Ju Jesus had not come to the attention of the Roman authorities. Of that, we can be certain from Pilate's reaction when Jesus is brought to him, why do you bring this man? And also, that's the whole purpose of asking the question, about whether it is lawful to pay tribute to Caesar. Remember, that's why they are setting him up. Not because they're going to report him to the Sanhedrin, but they want to report him to the Romans so that the Romans will arrest him, you see? Yeah. So to this point, Jesus has not come to the attention of the Romans. And why would he? What, what are they going to say to Pilate? Oh, Pilate, there's this rabbi who's attracting big crowds. And what about it? Is he, is he a problem? Is he telling people to do anything against Rome? No. Well, then why are you bothering me with that? <laughs> so, no, I mean, if you think about it from a truly historical perspective, not what we imagine must have happened, that's a very bad way to do exegesis. Yeah. Then we can see that, uh, that Pilate has never heard of Jesus. 
So early Friday morning, Jesus is brought to Pilate, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, well, what do you, you know, why are you bringing this man to me? Because this is a day, this is a the eve of the Passover, the, because the days went from sunset to sunset. Uh, Passover is going to start, it's Friday morning, Passover is going to start at sunset. And Pilate is a busy man, okay? He's not normally in Jerusalem. He is there because, because Jerusalem is not the Roman capital. The Roman capital is Caesarea Maritima. He's in Jerusalem because of the huge crowds that are about to start assembling on the Temple Mount. He wants to control the crowds and make sure there's no rebellion against Rome because Passover is a time of political and religious fervor because mm. the Jews were remembering their liberation from slavery in Egypt and now they're under Roman occupation and they, they want to be liberated again. So, And also you have just huge crowds of people in a rather small, compact space. It just lends itself to you know a riot. So that's why he's there. And they bring Jesus to Pilate and he says, well, why are you bringing this man? And what do they say? If he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. Well, what the heck is that? Evil doer. <laughs> and so that's not a crime. And yeah. he says, take him away and judge him according to your own law. Just take him away. And you notice that they had the right to judge according to their own law. But he doesn't know they already did that. They found him guilty. So evil doer is not a crime under Roman law. So one of the things that one of the things that a lot of his uh, Bible scholars will say is that the gospel portrayal of Pilate is not accurate because he's hesitant to put Jesus to death. And in the book, I explain step by step by step why he did not want put to, to put Jesus to death. And the very first reason is, comes out of the mouth of the Jewish leaders, if he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him. Well, Pilate has to follow Roman law. There has to be a crime alleged. Yeah. And this is not a crime. Being an evildoer is not a crime. Pilate cannot commence a trial on that basis. So, um, he's so he continues talking to them and Jesus is inside the praetorium. And what we realize when Pilate comes in back into the praetorium and starts to question Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now we see they came up with a crime and the crime is treason. And they base that on the fact that Jesus received this hero's welcome into Jerusalem on Sunday. So we don't see that part of the conversation, but we know that that it must be the tr the crime that they present. They, but it's quite amazing when you think about the fact that they expect Pilate to just rubber stamp their, you know, decision mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. have Jesus put. They just want him to put him to death. But Pilate is not going to do that because he has his own Roman laws and procedures to follow. He was accountable to his own higher ups. You know, he just just didn't willy nilly put people to death. He put people to death without hesitation, whom he believed were a threat to Roman order. But so, that does not mean that he would put an innocent person to death easily. So this so is begins, really where they get yeah. him. They actually make him a threat to Rome. They, they actually exactly. kind of maneuver right. him they, in they, Pilate's they, mind. That's right. He's condemned to death by the Jewish leaders for blasphemy, which is a religious crime. But that's not a crime under Roman law. So um, they have to find a Roman crime. So so that's what happens. So they accuse him of treason. Now, Pilate begins to question Jesus and realizes immediately that Jesus is not a threat, because when he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, Has, have other people said this to you about me or are you did you you know hear about this yourself? And the reason why he says that is to call is to bring home to Pilate the fact that Pilate has not heard of Jesus. And believe me, if Jesus was a threat to Roman order. 
then Pilate would have heard about him. But instead, the only people who are accusing Jesus of being a threat to Rome are the guys standing outside, right? The ones who said he's an evildoer. So they concoct this. And Pilate is not inexperienced. One of the main jobs of a Roman governor was to hold trials. Pilate was very experienced. And as Jesus sits and talks to him, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He realizes Jesus is not begging for his life. Jesus is not fearful. He's calm. He's in control. He's not asking for an orator to plead his case. He's not offering Pilate a bribe. Pilate can see that he is innocent. Okay. So that's why he's reluctant. So this whole idea, well, Pilate, that a lot of Bible scholars will say, well, Pilate would never have acted like this. Well, we know that Pilate put a lot of people to death, but those are people that he believed were guilty of something. He does Jesus have a little bit not, of honor. He has a little bit of, you know, just yeah, get, the, doing his he, job. He, exactly. He had to follow his own procedures, you know. This idea that he just willy-nilly put people to death for no reason is also not accurate. That's a caricature. So he thinks Jesus is not guilty of anything. So he comes out and says, I find no crime in him. But he suggests something. He suggests the release of Jesus on the basis of clemency, he's Pilate is the one who who uh, suggests the release because at Passover there was a Jewish custom to release a prisoner. That's on the option of the Romans. Now, why does Pilate suggest this? Because again, Pilate knows these people. Pilate had already been governor of Judea for seven years by this time. He was governor of Judea from twenty six to thirty six. This is the year thirty three. And Pilate knew these people. This was a very high-level delegation of important Jewish officials. And these people who ran the Jewish nation, the high priests and the chief priests, worked in cooperation with Rome. Pilate needed them, and they needed him, so that everything would run smoothly. This is uh, the aristocracy and of, of Judaism cooperated with the Romans to keep their position and their power and their money. So Pilate doesn't want to just release Jesus, say, he, look, he's, he hasn't committed any Roman crime. That doesn't mean he did, didn't commit a Jewish crime, but he didn't commit a Roman crime. Yeah. So, so they, he, so he offers to, Barabbas. Who, Barabbas is like a murderer. No. He's an insurrectionist. Yeah. I mean, we, Pilate doesn't say that. Pilate suggests the prisoner release in order to help them save face. Because if he just outright releases Jesus, this will be embarrassing to these Jewish leaders. Because the whole Sanhedrin has just found him guilty. That's mm. 70 plus men. And he, he doesn't want to embarrass them. So he suggests Jesus on this basis so they will not lose face. So the Jewish leaders can say, listen, thing we could do about it. Pilate is trying to play a political game to make it easier for them to accept the release so that they will not be embarrassed that they failed to get Jesus convicted, you see? Yeah. So that's why he suggested, but they say, no, 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 not Jesus, Barabbas. And yes, Barabbas was the last person Pilate would want to release because he really is a murderer and an insurrectionist. But now because Pilate has opened the door to this idea of the prisoner release, and now it's, it gets out of his control. So now, the ones, go ahead. No, so so it's now, I got to move forward because I want to make sure we, we, we get in this yes. get this in because it's really important. I mean, your book really does read like kind of a screenplay, kind of this, you know, like ideas, like, but with, with all these facts and, other, and understanding the knowledge and understanding the history, understanding the culture of the first century, yes. both Romans yes. and Jews, and you've got to understand this, understand what's happening here when Jesus is crucified and this trial, Pilate, you know, 
we have these, you know, artistic impressions yes. of this, yes. you know, you know, behold the man. You know, Pilate right, is right. up here saying, behold the man. Yes. And he yes. is now saying he's going to wash his hands of this. Yes. Yes. And that's symbolic saying, I find no guilt in this right. man. But right, right. because you've already found him guilty, and now I have to do something. I've tried <laughs> right. the, the the prisoner release, yes. you know, right. I, angle, right. and that it. failed. Yeah, that fails. Why does that fail? You see, people think that all well, the Jews just flipped on Jesus. All the Jewish people are shouting for his crucifixion. No, this is early Friday morning. It's in a little corner on the Temple Mount outside the Antonia Fortress. There's no big crowds there. People aren't just milling around. They're down below in the city below preparing for Passover. Who orchestrates the the shouts for Barabbas? It is the chief priests because they're very close to the temple. And they went over there. They got their friends to come over and shout for Barabbas. So Pilate, again, recognizes that Jesus is innocent of anything. So he tries to absolve himself of responsibility by washing his hands. If they were very concerned about being guilty for the blood of an innocent person, I think that's a very good point that you bring out, because it shows us that Pilate, neither Pilate nor anyone in antiquity, wanted to be responsible for the death of an innocent person. They really felt that there was very bad, you know, repercussions for that by the gods and that sort of thing. But Pilate is reluctant to crucify Jesus because finally the Jewish leaders come out and say, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And now Pilate is very nervous. And this is why he was reluctant, because he really believed, because of Jesus's comportment, his demeanor, Jesus was never afraid before Pilate. And People were terrified of Pilate, okay? And, and they get and, him, but they get Pilate by saying one thing that is right. the one thing that Pilate knows it can't, it can't get back to the home office. Right. What do they tell that, him? They, they say to him, they say to him, um, if you do not crucify him, you are no friend of Caesar. And now okay? he begins to so quit. Pilate, yeah, so Pilate really does not want to crucify Jesus. And this is why it, the Gospels are historically accurate. Because the the Romans and the Greeks had lots of stories in their histories and their mythologies of gods coming from Olympus and looking like regular people and being if they were mistreated by humans, the humans suffered terribly for it. So Pilate really believes that Jesus could be a god. That's not like we might think that that's silly, but that's reality for Pilate. So the Jewish leaders say, if you don't put him to death, you are no friend of Caesar. Now, Pilate knew that there was a a, a leading advisor to Tiberius Caesar who had been put to death for treason only a few months before this. And the Jewish leaders are hinting because they know about the politics. They know what's going on in Rome, believe me. Mm. And now they use this as their trump card and they force Pilate to put condemn Jesus to death. It is after they say you're no friend of Caesar that he goes up to the judgment seat immediately to sentence Jesus to death. And this is when he says, of course, he says, um, uh, they say crucify him. It, 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 just because Barabbas is released doesn't mean that Jesus has to be crucified. And they're shouting for his crucifixion. And he says, shall I crucify your king? He's, he's, he's very sarcastic. Because, and we Mm -hmm. have no king but Caesar, so they commit blasphemy by saying that Caesar is their only king. Not God, but Caesar. So Pilate knows about that there was a fellow, his name was Sejanus, Elias Sejanus, 
who had been considered, um, who Tiberius suspected of treason. And even though he was very, very close to Tiberius, and it was said that whoever was a friend of Sejanus was a friend of Caesar, he had been executed by Tiberius. Pilate knew this, the Jewish leaders knew this, and they decided that he has to go. Um, I mean, so Tiberius had put Sejanus to death along with a lot of his associates. Pilate knows this. So when the Jewish leaders say this, they are hinting to him, if you don't put Jesus to death, we're going to tell Tiberius that we brought someone before you accused of treason and you didn't do anything about it. Uh-oh. And that would, and Tiberius was very, very paranoid. And he would have recalled Pilate. Pilate would have probably been put to death and they would have had another governor and they would have brought Jesus before the other governor who would certainly have done what they wanted and put Jesus to death. So that's how they end up overriding Pilate's objections because Pilate knows Jesus to be innocent of any wrongdoing. This is a fascinating book. We are out of time. I want to give people the the crucifixion of the King of Glory, uh, Eugenia Scarvelis Constantino, which is what's on the book cover. So it's Constantino, Mm -hmm. but it's Dr. Jeannie, we all know. Right. But um, you have a website. What's your website that people can check out more of your stuff? Thank you. DrGenie.com, D-R-J-E-A-N-N-I-E.com. Thank you for asking. And the book is available in all kinds of places by the publisher Ancient Faith, uh, store.ancientfaith.com or on Amazon. It's in Audible and it's in uh, electronic form. So however you like to consume your content, uh, it's a really good insight into a lot. There are so many things we didn't even get to talk about. I know. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lauren. You'll learn so much about what's going on Holy Week. And, and for the Western mm-hmm. world, Holy Week begins on on this Sunday. For yes. the Orthodox, it begins next Sunday. So um, you got two weeks, really. <laughs> to, and it's really a fascinating book. You'll learn a lot about um, ancient uh, Jewish culture, ancient Rome, Um and also about the faith, the Christianity. You learn so much yes. about it. It's really fascinating. So thank you so much, Dr. Jeannie uh, Constantino, for, for being on Lighthouse me. Faith Podcast. And happy Easter to you and to everyone. Thank God you so much. God bless us all. And may the Lord bless you with a wonderful Pascha. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed, blessed day. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.